Hello and welcome to More Than A Number, the podcast brought to you by ICAEW, looking behind the numbers to discover how they're really impacting our lives. I'm financial journalist Louise Cooper, and today in this episode, we're looking at how numbers can be subverted to manipulate people and policy. There are three kinds of lies. Lies, damned lies and statistics. British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli said that over 150 years ago, politicians have long understood the importance of numbers and why they would want to manipulate them. And so it is still. The infamous slogan on the Brexit battle bus, we send the EU £350 million a week, let's fund our NHS instead, is just one of many examples. So this week we're asking, will numbers always be subverted? But before we get into that discussion, I was joined by Ed Humpherson, Director General for Regulation at the UK Statistics Authority, and he explained what they do and why their work is so important to our understanding of statistics. So the UK Statistics Authority uh, upholds the public value of statistics. And as part of that... We identify cases where statistics are misused in ways which could mislead the public and we make public statements to clarify how the statistics should be interpreted. We are constantly active in supporting the use of statistics and that's because it's so important in a world of data abundance where citizens, voters, the public are bombarded, bombed by facts from all sides it's so important that they are provided with some means to help them sift the useful from the useless, the meaningful from the meaningless. And one example where statistics were misused and have misled the public was in the Eurozone in Greece. And it's had devastating consequences for Andreas Georgiou, used to head up the Greek statistical agency. Let's hear some of the background to his case. Andreas Giorgio ran Greece's statistical agency from 2010 to 2015. For seven long years, his political enemies used the court to hound him on simply ridiculous charges of deliberately exaggerating the size of Greece's 2009 budget deficit. The accusations hurled at him were falsifying the data in order to justify the EU IMF emergency rescue of 2010 and the imposition of harsh Greek austerity measures. While these statistics that were produced under his supervision have been used by all Greek governments since 2010 for their budgets and for receiving hundreds of billions of euros in bailout loans, charges were pressed against him in early 2012 for these same figures. In the years that followed, there were multiple court decisions to drop the charges against him for these figures, but the Greek Supreme Court kept annulling his acquittals opening the way for further legal proceedings against the public servant, whose only offence was to highlight the extreme fiscal irresponsibility of the politicians that misrule Greece. And I'm delighted to have Andreas Georgiou, former head of the Greek Statistical Agency, join me. Hello, Andreas. Uh, hello, and it's a pleasure to be with you. It's been a series of legal cases ever since. The original criminal charge that you damaged Greece by falsifying its economic statistics, although the international community, the international statistical organisations would, would back you up that your numbers were applied correctly. What's happened to that? What, what have you been found guilty of in Greece? Well, uh, let me say that th that damage, it was assessed to in the amount of 171 billion euro, okay, which is about the size of Greek GDP these days. For this case, charges were pressed in uh, on January 22, 2013, 
after I provided a lot of information to um, the prosecutor for economic crimes in Greece, but at the end, uh, he pressed charges. And then on four different occasions, either uh, prosecutors, investigating judges, or actually panels of judges in the appeals court council, they decided to drop the charges or they proposed to drop the charges. Actually, the appeals court council uh, decided formally, which is a three-judge panel, three times to drop the charges. All these times, the case was uh, reopened and um, these decisions or proposals were not uh, accepted. The last time, however, the third time that the Appeals Court Council decided to drop the charges, actually it was not reversed. And that happened in April of 2019. Uh, in the beginning of April, um, we, the, the last uh, acquitting decision came out and the charges, uh, and then it, this was not reversed. So that particular case, uh, as far as the falsification of the figures, is closed. But only now, after almost eight years, and there are other cases, court cases, open against you. What is still outstanding against you? Well, and I'm correct in saying there have been some cases in Greece decided against you. Yes, absolutely. There were two parts of that. There was a preparatory crime that I did not put up the numbers to a vote, and that was for a repeated violation of duty. I did not accept that anybody would vote on the figures, and that was fully consistent with the code of practice that says the sole responsibility lies with the with the head of the institution. And that's very clear in under professional independence criterion 1.4. There were a number of instances where it was proposed that the charge was dropped. I was actually tried in open court on December 6, 2016, and I was acquitted unanimously by first instance court. A few days later, the decision was annulled, and I had to be retried in a double jeopardy trial, and I was convicted to two years in jail. It was suspended because at that point I didn't have any other conviction. So that is there, and I believe I have not received a fair trial in Greece on that account. In 2013, two criminal investigations began. I asked the staff of the institution to sign a statistical confidentiality declaration, which is required explicitly from all official statisticians in Europe, which means that when you knock on a door and you get the data of a household, an individual or an enterprise, uh, you only use them strictly for statistical purposes and you do not use them for any other purpose or you do not provide them for any other purpose. I asked the staff to do that and I was taken to court actually for asking the staff to do that. So that is there and it's open and it, I do not have any indication, any information that it has been closed since 2013. And then there were two other cases um, related to alleged slander on my side. In one of these many reversals about the case of allegedly damaging Greece and by falsifying the data, I actually put out an electronic press release and I defended the statistics and the revisions, which of course had been validated fully by Eurostat for a number of years by that time when I put out the press release in 2014. They had already been validated already about eight times. So I asked, why am I the one that is being investigated all these years? And uh, the people from the period before who might be responsible for this are not being investigated. And I was taken to court for criminal slander and also a civil suit for criminal slander. And that was done in 2014. In the case of the criminal slander, the criminal court case, I was convicted to one year in jail. And and the conviction was actually for something in Greece called simple slander, which means that what you say is true, but uh, it offends the reputation of of some plaintiff. 
So you say the truth, but you shouldn't have said it. And you said it because you were defending your numbers exactly. that had been approved by the European Statistical Authority and the International Statistical Authority. And I also did it in accordance to, again, our ethics in, in the European Statistics Code of Practice under professional independence. Our indicator 1.7 says that you have to defend statistics when they are uh, attacked and uh, misused. So I basically was following the Greek and European law that refers to these uh, principles in the Code of Practice. So the Supreme Court actually annulled uh, my conviction in that case. Otherwise, I would now be in jail because I would have had two criminal convictions. It annulled it because it found that there were significant legal errors in the court's decision. But it asks that actually I be tried again. But the, they put the date of my trial uh, beyond the statute of limitations. Uh, I do not know for, you know, by mistake. Uh, and uh, actually I was never tried. Uh, but I do not have a conviction in that case. But the civil suit is still going on. And I actually was convicted in the civil case. Uh, I am liable to indemnify the plaintiff and I have to pay monetary damages to him. And also I have to make a public apology in a Greek major newspaper uh, with significant daily fines if I do not do that. I have appealed that and the trial is slated for January 2020. And finally, the final case is even after I had left my office, uh, I left in uh, August of 2015 after fully completing my five-year term. Uh, but in, uh, in September 2016, the chief prosecutor of the Supreme Court, who had actually annulled two of my acquittals in the case that I, about alleged falsification, actually initiated on her own account a brand new criminal investigation for exactly the same thing on the basis of two articles in a Greek newspaper, which was rehashing the same accusations, but also bringing in accusations about Eurostat staff and IMF staff and European Commission staff, etc. And it's about the same thing. So the point, Luis, here is that although I have been acquitted about these accusations in one case, actually there is an open case that we have no information that has been closed that's still out there open. What impact has this had on your health and your family life? Well, I can tell you that on me, because I'm in the middle of fighting the good fight, the implications on me personally are not as severe as it is for my family. It was of great stress to my parents. Uh, my father was particularly affected by this persecution. Uh, my father died, actually, and I believe that this contributed, this extreme stress of these continuous trials double and triple jeopardy uh, situations, and he died a year and a half ago. And this uh, has been a stress to them and my family. But I will tell you the following, that I think that there's a message in all of this. The message is not uh, just for me. Uh, the message is for all the people who continue to do their work as official statisticians in Greece, that uh, this is what happens to people who do their work according to the rules. And then also one can point what happens to people who you know, have been in, in positions and didn't do their work according to the rules. Okay, I think there's an interesting uh, juxtaposition there. And there is a message and a signal to people who want to actually, like me, follow the rules as far as the compilation of statistics that are enshrined um, uh, in European law in the case of official statistics, and also according to statistical ethics, which are enshrined in our code of European Statistics Code of Practice. Also with me is Professor Sir David Spiegelhalter, Chair of the Winton Centre for Risk and Evidence Communication at the University of Cambridge and prior president of the Royal Statistical Society. David, welcome. You've just heard Andreas's story What's your reaction? Oh, it's it's very 
chilling, you know, to hear about this persecution of Andreas, and and very humbling to 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 think of what he's had to had to go through. Uh, when I was president of the Royal Statistical Society, you know, we were part of uh, many organisations that were writing letters and and trying to influence things in his favour. But I'm I'm sure without actually actually that much effect. So um, yeah, I, 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 I'm so impressed at what he's had to put up with. Um, and, and to me, it just reinforces the incredible value of reliable, trustworthy statistics, because it just, this just goes to show, you know, how important they are, and, you know, the, the passions they can ar- arise, arouse, and, um, and that, you know, working mm. to a code, working to a mm. code of ethics is absolutely essential. Okay, what, what lessons are there to be learned for here in the UK from this? Well, yeah, I can only speak, really speak for the UK. And uh, we're fortunate because, you know, just about over 10 years ago, we had a Statistics Act, which, which did make the statistics service independent of government and directly but, but, answerable to Parliament. But that is only 10 years ago. I think oh, most yes, people yeah. would be surprised by that. No, 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 exactly. No. And, and uh, we were very lucky to get it, I think, because up to then, you know, statistics had been under the Treasury. They could be manipulated by the government. It was seen... And and even up to just recently, um, you know, the special advisors were getting prior view of statistics before journalists and everyone else was. And that, it looks like that's just about been stopped now after m- numerous campaigns. But, um, you know, you no, know, people have had to work hard for this and fight for it. And um, in the UK, I think we're in a better position. Um, it mustn't be complacent. You know, constant vigilance. Um, in order to keep up the trustworthiness uh, of stats. And there's a issue with um, recorded crime statistics and migration oh, statistics. Yeah, yeah, I mean, stats aren't perfect. And, and um, you know, we have this uh, sort of designation of national statistics. They get a sort of tick mark. And um, and things get unticked. You know, uh, police-recorded crime, for example, the statistics that the police... Uh, record themselves is now has been de-designated is no longer a, a, a trustworthy considered a trustworthy statistic and and just recently just a few months ago amazingly the the, um, the migration statistics um, which people have known for some time are based on some pretty low quality uh, surveys um, have been also lost their designation as national statistics and this is a warning they're still collected they're still um, uh, published but now that sort of quality you know stamp of approval has gone but, but, but that's at- but that's quite shocking well, yeah, yes, I know you're a statistician, but you know a lot of people in this country, a lot of voters, a lot of electorates care about the crime statistics, Absolutely. and they care about the migration statistics. Yep. And you say we can't rely on them. Well, they, I wouldn't say can't rely on them. They I mean there are better crime statistics. The Crime Survey of England are national statistics, and that's considered as as more reliable than the police recorded crime. Migration, um, I, I'm sure it'll get back its designation soon as they're revising the methodology. Um, but I think it's very fair mm-hmm. to actually, you know, withdraw that designation while that's under consideration. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- these issues are being dealt with continually, and there's a, a you know, a constant mm-hmm. effort to improve the reliability of the statistics. It was yep. interesting, you know, this term trustworthy is used, but the code of practice, the new code of practice for official statistics in the UK, puts trustworthiness as its number one pillar. You're listening to More Than a Number, brought to you by ICAEW. Also with me is Robert Hodgkinson, Executive Director at ICAEW, responsible for corporate governance and professional ethics. Why are then trustworthy statistics essential to society? Because statistics are the basis for making decisions. They're tremendously... um, uh, relevant to people. They have a kind of salience and a or seductive quality. So they're going to dominate um, policymaking. And if you're not understanding the context uh, in which they're prepared, or even worse, if they're just 
straightforwardly manipulated or unreliable, then your whole political system gets uh, gets undermined. So what can we do when faced with potentially misleading statistics? Full Fact is a website devoted to try and tell the truth behind the numbers. I'm Will Moy. I'm the chief executive of Full Fact, which is the UK's independent fact-checking charity. We've been worrying about these questions of whether people can trust the numbers they're hearing in the news, what people make of economic and other news that they're asked to make judgments on as voters. For almost 10 years now, we launched in 2010 to try to keep politics and journalism honest, not just the politicians and journalists themselves, but the pressure groups and everyone who tries to influence it as well. And we found enormous demand from the public for trustworthy information. There are so many people with an agenda to sell these days. And it's so easy to set up something that looks plausible, looks convincing, can get media coverage or spread its word online. It's very hard for all of us to know what we can trust. And that's what Full Fact do as fact checkers. We listen to important claims in the news. We work out where they've originally come from. We trace them back to original sources. We work out whether those sources stand up. And then we publish a fact check for links to all of its sources that people can judge for themselves. And what we find is that People are spotting for really big news stories, but perhaps that's slightly less important than it was a decade ago when the news was more dominated by a predictable group of broadcasters and newspapers. So it's not just when governments get things wrong that it matters these days, but equally we're seeing politicians using the internet to bypass media scrutiny to answer the questions they choose from the public and not have to deal with the awkward things of follow-up questions that journalists might ask them. We know that less than one in five people would generally trust politicians to tell the truth, which is devastating. We also know from a 2016 YouGov poll that only 20% of people strongly agree that when they hear the economy discussed in the media or by politicians or even by economists, that they can feel this information is reliable and trustworthy. Asked to give it a score out of 10, the average score was 4.4 out of 10. So particularly when people are talking about numbers and money, we know that a lot of the public are switching off either because people aren't very confident thinking about numbers or because they're not trusting what they're getting and who they're getting it from. So Full Fact's job isn't just to counteract people who are getting things wrong and get them to correct the record, although we do that and we've had everyone from prime ministers down correct the record. It's also to help people place trust in things that do deserve to be trusted. It's very easy for us all now. We have so much information to be overwhelmed and to choose between either blind faith in only the people we agree with or blind cynicism in everything. And actually what fact-checking is trying to do is say you can make reasonable judgments as to what to trust. And that, I think, has been most intense when people are asked to vote Uh, in the referendum in 2016 around elections and so on. The iconic number in the EU referendum was obviously we send £350 million a week to the EU. Uh, Let's spend it on our NHS instead. Now, that was far from the only thing in that campaign that was inaccurate. In fact, both sides put out very misleading claims, not just about numbers, but numbers were a big part of it. 
350 million was wrong because it failed to take into account the fact that Margaret Thatcher negotiated a discount on the UK's membership fee of the EU, and that's something that the Statistics Authority pointed out. And more than a million people have come to full fact to read our analysis of that particular claim. We also know that people struggled to find that trustworthy information. And the first place many people turn nowadays is Google. Um, so that's why not only is it important for us to hold governments to account, for us to have civil society organisations like Full Facts that are helping to counteract the misuse of statistics by politicians, but also statutory bodies like the UK Statistics Authority who can do that with legal force behind. We need to remember that the information world is so much broader than that now. And Full Facts has started working with both Google and Facebook to integrate our fact-checking into their tools to reach the widest possible audience. And that, I think, is the next generation of the challenge for fact-checkers. Robert, the 350 million to the EU, can you pick apart what is the problem with that number? We've already heard some of the um, the problems around whether it was just inaccurate because it, um, it, it, it excluded a rebate, uh, but also it... it kind of didn't have the context that there were flows in the other direction. And it also didn't have the context that uh, I would say as an accountant, the numbers capture so much, but they don't capture what it is you're getting that might be a lot more intangible. And David, this is important, communication around a number, explaining what it is and what it isn't. Yeah, I mean, the way the numbers don't speak for themselves, it's the story is what gives the emotional impact. And that £350 million a week, let's assume it actually is true, which it isn't, uh, was very cleverly packaged because you could have explained it in ways which would not make it look so large. If you'd said it was less than 1% of GDP, it wouldn't have looked so so big. If you'd said that's about 75 pence per person per day, the price of a packet of cheese and onion crisps, we send the EU every day. That would not have sound so, it sounded so impressive either. So the, um, the, the way in which the story is told is absolutely vital. And that's why I think a, a, you know, a crucial element now of statistical training is in terms of communication and understanding the impact of that communication. Uh, and Andreas, you teach at an American university. You actually teach a course on the ethics of statistics. What's in it and why is it important? Well, it- I teach the course on statistical ethics and institutions uh, because uh, official statistics, but all statistics in general, but official statistics in particular, they hold up a mirror to society. They allow us to uh, follow the the Greek dictum, you know, know thyself as a society. And it permits us actually as a large society to organize democratically uh, and not to uh, rely on casual empiricism. Uh, It permits sex imbalances to operate. Uh, and it permits government to be representative by the proper census and all of this. And it also permits public accountability of the governments in power. So uh, official statistics are extremely important, and that's why and it's very important to, to have the ethics about it and the inst- proper institutions. And uh, just to complete with that, uh, that thought, um, what I teach my students is that it's very important to further develop official statistics, their institutional environment. We have to have not only professional, but also institutional independence of statistics. Okay, and we what, have... what institutional independence of statistics. David, during the Brexit campaign, we actually saw the Statistics Authority publicly criticising those who used the numbers wrongly. Tell me about that. Well, the, one of the roles of, of Statistics Authority is as a kind of watchdog, public watchdog, and to publicly tell off 
politicians and others who are misusing statistics. So, for example, you know, even after the referendum, when Boris Johnson as foreign secretary reused the £350 million, he was publicly um, castigated for that, for the, what was going, a misuse of official statistics uh, by the Stats Authority. And they've been also been having a very good go recently at the way the Department for Education is using special advisors to package their statistics to make things sound much better than they really were. And so, you know, this is, you know, that sort of policeman role, you know, to put people on uh, the naughty step and tell them off is obviously very, very important. It's just only one aspect, but it is reassuring to know that that's going on. Well, just hold that thought, David, because I asked Ed Humpherson about that policeman role. We should be behind the scenes. We shouldn't even have to do this work at all. What we should be is just making sure that uh, statistics are reliable and used in a reliable way. So we don't we don't court publicity. We step in when we have to and we make sure that journalists and social media pick up on what we say, but we don't do it to big up our name. We do it so that people understand the numbers. The other crucial thing we do is that we set very clear expectations on government departments about what they should do in future so that each intervention is not just a one-off. It, it carries with it a set of recommendations that then guides the department to do the appropriate thing with their, with their statistics and communicate them and the context around them, uh, the more than just the numberness of them, to do that uh, appropriately. If there was any sense that we were subject to undue political uh, interference, not just the perception, but in actuality, if it actually happened, I think we'd be dead in the water. Uh, I think it's, it's absolutely crucial that our act establishes us as being an independent body, it, independent from, from government ministers, uh, and that we demonstrate that even-handedness. And that is why it was so important that during any electoral campaign, uh, or indeed outside electoral campaigns, that we look at all users of statistics equally. We don't, we don't pick sides. The UK leads the world. Uh, I do look across the world and, and try and identify people who do what uh, I do in other countries, and we are ahead of other countries. I think other countries will, will look at us and think that's a model they need to, to develop in these post-truth times, but we don't, there's, there's no obvious comparator to us. Post-truth, a, a world in which people are so surrounded by uh, information and data and purported facts that they feel cut loose from their moorings and they're not sure what they can rely on and what they can't rely on any longer. Um, people suspect that some of the information they've served up is not reliable, but they're not entirely sure how to sift what's reliable and from what's unreliable. That's what I mean by post-truth. The most important thing I think that members of the public can do, and this is why I don't want to promote our name or big us up, is that this sits in the hands of, of everybody who, who handles numbers. Both the people who communicate with them need to take their responsibilities seriously, but the people who, who listen to them, that kind of healthy scepticism, kind of going the extra click, you know, wh wh where is this from? Who's, who's, who's created it? Why, why should I trust this? I think healthy scepticism is, a, is, is the right way that we should all um, ha handle our, our, our interaction with, with what we hear. And that was Ed Humpherson, Director General for Regulation at the UK Statistics Authority. And Robert, um, you touched earlier on the importance of statistics for evidential, for evidence to inform public policy. Can you just explain a little bit more about that? Uh, yes. Uh, the, uh, and I think this is where we, we need to think that it's far broader than just are people telling the truth or not, because actually what you choose to measure um, uh, means that statistics is, and like accounting is fundamentally an ethical uh, activity. What do you choose to, to measure? 
and that frames the whole way that the debate is um, uh, public debates happen. So I think it's far more fundamental than just calling out bad behaviour and saying um, that that needs to be punished or prevented or people need to have. That's when ethics kicks in. It's right from the start of thinking, what are we measuring and why? David? Yeah, I mean, I think this, this comes into the whole basis of, you know, what is the basis for policies that uh, that politicians might might recommend? And, and often they will say, oh, the evidence points towards something or other. Well, well, actually, does it? And, you know, policy, it can't be just based on evidence. It has to be just only informed by evidence. But there has to be evidence that is genuinely balanced and does represent what's known rather than just what's picked and chosen, cherry-picked to, to back up what a particular minister wants to do. And so, uh, as has been said, this is a deeply ethical consideration that evidence should be used to inform rather than persuade, and this needs to be carefully monitored. And now I'd just like to go back to the title of this podcast, £350 million, Truth, Lies and Numbers. Will numbers always be subverted? And I want to ask you for your concluding comments. Andreas. Well, I think that the uh, the important thing to um, to recognise that is that um, uh, statistics, uh, especially official statistics, are a global public good. They belong to everyone um and they do not belong to uh, the government they belong to all of us and uh, in order to protect them in order to serve that role uh, of uh, with integrity and trust they have to be both the proper institutions and the ethics and the public and uh, the, as users as well as the statisticians have to be uh, educated in statistical ethics david I agree with all of that. You know, this, the numbers are so important, and just because they're not perfect, we mustn't, as, as Will Moy from Full Facts said, we mustn't sink into cynicism about that, and just we need a constant vigilance in terms of their balance and their trustworthiness and always seeking to improve them. Because, of course, you don't want everyone to distrust every statistic. Well, There's good quality numbers out there. Otherwise, one's just in the hands of appeals to emotion, appeals to, to, to our basis feelings, rather than giving some idea, you know, actually what is going on, and without knowing that, without having some idea of magnitudes, we are just, you know, we're just, you know, open to any amount of manipulation. Robert, last words to you. Uh, will they always be subverted? No, but unless you invest effort, there'll be a tendency for them to be subverted until you get to that position where nothing's trusted. So this is hard work. It's hard work for uh, not just the preparers to abide by ethics, but also for everyone to take responsibility for this. And you know what I took out of the full fact um, argument uh, story was mm -hmm. that actually you need a civil uh, society that's prepared to be interested because if you've got a system in which people are held to account for their statistics then you raise quality well i would like to thank the panel andreas georgiou professor david spiegelhalter and robert hodgkinson uh, executive director from icaew you've been listening to more than a number with me louise cooper a podcast brought to you by icaew the institute of chartered accountants in england and wales for those of you that don't know chartered accountants are highly trained critical thinkers who apply their knowledge to get behind the numbers and work towards building a world of strong economies so make sure you subscribe to more than a number so you never miss an episode if you want to get in touch with the show, just email MTAN, more than a number, MTAN at ICAEW.com. And tune in next time when we'll be looking at how we could profit off the planet to the tune of $12 trillion.